Psalm 24. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and they that dwell therein. For he hath founded it upon the seas and established it upon the floods. Who shall ascend unto the hill of the Lord, or who shall stand in his holy place? He that hath clean hands and a pure heart, or who hath not lifted up his soul unto vanity, nor sworn deceitfully. He shall receive the blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation. This is the generation of them that seek him, that seek thy face, O Jacob, Selah. Lift up your hands, O ye gates, lift ye up, ye everlasting doors, and the King of glory shall come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord strong and mighty, the Lord mighty in battle. Lift up your hands, O ye gates, even lift them up, ye everlasting doors, and the King of glory shall come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord of hosts, he is the King of glory. Selah. Let us pray. Gracious Father, we thank you again for your word that you've given unto us. Father, we thank you there is so much of it in every page, Lord. It shows us your greatness, your goodness, your kindness, your holiness, and our need for you. And above all, Lord, our blessed Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Father, would you open our eyes? Would you work with your spirit in me and all of us, Lord, as we look at it, as we think about it, and that we would be encouraged by it? In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. This morning, as we look at this great psalm of David, uh, keep in mind that we will be celebrating the Lord's Supper. Um, uh, later on, with one accord, we gather around the table and we focus and remember all that the Lord Jesus did for us. This psalm is written by David, of course, as it says in the heading, and is often seen as the third in a row of three. Psalm 22, being concerned with the suffering Savior, the cross, as it were. Psalm 23, the psalm of comfort, or the shepherd's crook, the shepherd's staff, and his goodness and his guidance in our life and blessing. And this psalm is one of triumph and conquest of the ascendancy and the success of the Lord Jesus, the psalm of a crown. We have no title given here, but uh, other than it was written by David. The occasion of this writing is not 100% clear, but most of the commentators sense that this is perhaps the time when David took the Ark of the Covenant back after it was stolen by the enemies and for a certain amount of time was elsewhere, Obed-Edom, and now it goes back into the mountain. There's a triumphant procession. Perhaps you recall David there dancing before the ark and uh, and it says he was joyful and he was dancing and playing before the ark and one of his wives Michael was uh, uh, very um, ashamed and embarrassed by it. So he thought it would not be fitting for the king to express such exuberant not seeing the spiritual significance of the situation. The psalm describes the glorious procession of the ark a symbol of God's presence into the rightful place. One commentator, H.R. Ryland, says the Psalms in the old rabbinic reading schedules was to be read always the first day of the week, the Lord's Day, our Lord's Day, our Sunday, the day that we remember the resurrection and the ascension of our blessed Savior, and where he continues to do his work for us before the throne. And 
course, as the Lord Jesus reminded those two sad disciples on the way to Emmaus, when they were all downcast, he said, you were fools and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets had spoken concerning me and all the scriptures had spoken of him. And beginning at Moses and all the prophets, he has expounded to them the scriptures concerning himself. And with that, I, I would like to look beyond the ark this morning to our wonderful Savior, whose work and person we will remember in the Lord's Supper. So I have three points. God, one, the God, the great majestic sovereign, and God, the Holy One, number two, and three, Christ, the victorious and ascended one. In these first few verses, point one, David opens the psalm and speaks about the ownership and the majesty of God in his creation, as David often does in the psalms. As a youngster, he would have been out in the fields very often. He was gazing upon the stars, the vastness of the universe, the moon, the seasons, and he had considered God's handiwork a great deal, the work of his fingers. He saw the seasons and the animals and the birds of the air, and he had considered them in such a way that it drew him to the Lord, his power, his wisdom, his holiness, and as he would often wonder in Psalm 8, verse 4, what is man that thou art mindful of him, and the son of man that thou visited him? In this psalm here, in verse 1, he's reminding us that the earth is the Lord's, is Jehovah's, and not only the earth, but all the fullness that is therein. Everything in it, everyone in it, and everything that dwells in it. He starts out with a remembrance of who we are and ultimately and truly that we belong to this great maker and sustainer. The Jews may have thought in their day, especially in Jesus' day, that they were the only ones that God took care of. But clearly, all people, be they pagan or believers, belong to God in a certain sense. And in a special sense, of course, all those Gentile and Jew that are placed in Christ. And in Earth's history, we have seen, even up till this day, the arrogance of men, of kings and of rulers, emperors who claimed that they owned it, thought it was theirs. But each and every one of these kingdoms would eventually end up in the dustbin, dustbin of history. Think of Hitler, he killed himself in his ruins of his one proud city of Berlin in the bunker there. His vision of a thousand year reign barely lasted five. Alexander the Great got a long way at a very young age of conquering the known world only to die suddenly, never to enjoy what he had conquered. And every ruler since, good or bad, found out that naked they came into the world and naked they left, as Job had learned as well. The Roman Empire, Empire lasted for 500 years with all its splendor and territory, but eventually collapsed on its own. God sets his bounds to the nations and to the kings. Spurgeon writes, man is but a tenant at will, a leaseholder upon the most precarious tenor, liable to instantaneous removement. The great landowner and true owner who holds his courts above the clouds laughs at the title deeds of the worms 
of dust. Fullness of this glorious earth we see each and every day in its beauty, its wealth that it gives, its people. The Lord fills it and refills it season by season, providing for saint and sinner alike. The rain falls on the good and the bad. Paul preached that in Athens in Acts 17. He said, he made of one blood all nations of men to dwell on all the face of the earth. And he had determined the times before appointed and the bounds of their habitation, that they should seek the Lord, if happily they may feel after him and find him, though he be not far from every one of us. God is near. For in him we live and move and have our being. He goes on to say in verse 2, to further the theme of the creator God. An allusion here is given to Genesis 1, where the dry land appeared from the water. The water was often a, uh, depicted in scripture as an uncertain, tumultuous place of danger, of judgment, think of Noah's flood. God's power created a dry land and it shall not be moved. David writing in Psalm 104 writes, thou hast set a bound that it may not pass over, that they turn not again to cover the earth. He sent the springs into the valleys which run among the hills. They give drink to every beast of the field. The wild asses quench their thirst. By them shall the fowl of the heaven have their habitation, which sing among the branches. He watered the hills from his chambers. The earth is satisfied with the fruits of thy work. The Lord Jesus, the creator, amazed his disciples when he calmed the storm, when he rebuked the wind, and the wind ceased and a great calm followed. And they feared exceedingly, it says, and they said to one another, what manner of man is this, that even the wind and the seas obey him? And that's a question for you and I this morning. Do we live this way? Do we have that steadfast faith and belief that we say, the earth is the Lord's and all the fullness thereof? Is that a guiding principle? Not only that he sustains it as he sees fit, but day by day, hour by hour, it belongs to him. Can you say or teach yourself to say in the midst of your trials, whatever they be this morning, that you get up in the morning and say, the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. And that, as a Christian, you can say that in faith and practice that you have been bought with a price. I belong not to myself, but to him who loved me and gave himself for me. Is this your vision of God? <clears throat> a scripture portrays him, one that is unrivaled in his sovereignty, in all the details of your life. The earth is the Lord, the fullness thereof. He is the owner of everything. Or in practice, do you and I live as there is no God, or that God is limited in his power? Quickly thrown off our feet, quickly looking at the stormy water as Peter did, ready to sink. Do we use the gifts he gives us, whatever they may be, time, treasures or talents, property, whatever, for his good, for the glory of his name? It is, in the end, not ours. <clears throat> Everything that we have, we have received from his hand, his sovereign hand. 
David in Chronicles, 1 Chronicles 29, he opened up the temple, and we often use it, or used to often use it as a call to worship. It's a beautiful prayer. He said, Thine, O Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the victory and the majesty. For all that is in the heaven and in the earth is thine. Thine is the kingdom, O Lord, and thou art exalted as head above all. Both riches and honor come of thee, and thou reignest over all. In thine hand is power and might. In thine hand is to make great and to give strength unto all. Do we believe that? That's the God we worship, calls us to worship him. Well, much more could be said about these first two verses here, but David sets the tone, as it were, for what is to follow by showing God's power and might, his infinite glory and greatness to us creatures of dust. The marks of his greatness are everywhere to be seen. Do we see it? From the baby in the cradle, to the ant walking in your yard, to the worm there, to the mighty mountains and the stormy seas. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. Paul talks in Romans 1:20. he says, for the invisible things of him from the creation of the world are clearly seen being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead. Sometimes we are so accustomed to the, the world around us, its beauty, that we actually don't see it anymore. Imagine seeing it for the first time. Imagine being blind and suddenly you can see. You couldn't believe it. You'd probably be amazed that people didn't talk about it more with you. The second point is, God the Holy One. <clears throat> Here, David, in the light of this picture that he just painted of this great and sovereign God, asks a question. Who then shall ascend unto the hill of the Lord? Or, in light of such holiness, such power and might, who not only shall ascend, but stand there? Who shall stand in his presence? Who would dare to go up? Which one of us qualifies? Which one of us goes up? Whenever you get an invite to an earthly king or prince or queen or sovereign of some type, there are certain standards. There are certain codes and preparations. You cannot just show up. The staff would inform you as to the how and what and what you need to do to, to come before the king and may disqualify you if you don't meet the standards or if you have a shady past. In Psalm 15, David asked a similar question. He says, Psalm 15, verse 1, he says, Lord, who shall abide in thy tabernacle? Who shall dwell in thy holy hill? Is that not a question sinners have asked ever since the fall of Adam and Eve, ever since that dreadful fall? Who shall ascend unto the holy hill of God? Eden, that original temple where God dwelt with men before that awful change. They were not concerned about God's holiness. They were not concerned about his might. <clears throat> it was their delight. It was their fellowship. It was their wonder. Of course, man has tried its way in various ways to go back ever since, to climb up that hill, as it were. We see that in the Tower of Babel, isn't it? 
man trying to reach God in his own strength and in his own way. We see since that fall, man is incessant in his idol-worshipping behavior. Isaiah 14, the king of Tyre, is spoken of, but yet it's a picture of Lucifer, what it, it is said of him. Isaiah 14, 12, How art thou fallen from heaven, O Lucifer, son of the morning? How art thou cut down to the ground, which didst weaken the nation? For thou hast said in thine heart, I will ascend unto heaven. I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. I will sit upon the mount of the congregation in the sides of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will be like the most high. Kind of the original lie of Adam and Eve, isn't it? <clears throat> that holy hill pictured here is, of course, Mount Zion, where the temple was, where God dwelled. The holies of holies, the ark, that picture uh, of Christ and the mercy seat. But yet it looks beyond to heaven itself and to the heavenly temple. David goes on to write in verse 4 and answers the question that he asked in verse 3. He that hath clean hands and a pure heart, who hath not filled his soul with vanity, nor sworn deceitfully. He speaks here to those whose hands are clean and whose hearts are pure. Picture of purity in deed and heart. One of the first sins recorded after the fall of our first parents, we have the murder of Abel by his brother's hands. Hands that were created to worship God, to till the garden, to enjoy the fruit therein for the good of God and his glory. We're now used to snuff out, at first chance it seems, somebody made, another man made in the image and likeness of God. And you see the depths of man's fall. <clears throat> of course, the same wicked hands took the second Adam, the Lord Jesus Christ, and nailed him to a tree. Wicked hands nailed him to a tree. It shows you that if we have the opportunity, we would do that to our Creator. Man's hand and all his bodily organs have been used like this by you and me in 10,000 different ways, or as Paul puts it, as instruments of unrighteousness. The works of our hands reveal the unholiness of our hearts, mind, and of our fallen state. Pilate tried to wash his hands to symbolize that he was clean and innocent when it came to the death of our Lord Jesus. Abel's heart and mind were darkened, and it came forth in the evil works of darkness. Out of the hearts, all these things proceeds, the Lord Jesus says. David continues. <clears throat> he says in the verse, he says, Who hath not lifted up his soul unto vanity, nor sworn deceitfully. It's another way we're dealing with the issues of the heart, isn't it? The lifting up of one's soul the seat of one's being, their character, unto the vanities, the sinful pleasures, the idols of the world. Although many of the gifts are good, as we just spoke about in verse 1 and 2, we can replace them or place them in the wrong place instead of God at the first. We are more enthralled with his gifts than with the giver himself. Are placing them like the pagans do in a wrong place. 
Maybe sometimes you catch yourself doing that. You're looking forward to something or you're getting a new whatever, and you go like, hmm, am I more happy about getting this, the new car or home or job or whatever it is than my enjoyment of God? I think we're all guilty of that. The honors of the world, its riches, the people, indeed are a stumbling block to us, sins that fall. And we fall out of sync. All of us, as Calvin always said it famously, we are idle factories. Paul writes to the Romans, to the unbelievers, they're worshiping the creature rather than the creator. They fi find their satisfaction in them or rather than rather than in the glorious God himself, the giver and sustainer who gives every breath. Solomon, after he had tried in his life to go after all these things, he tried them all, but he said, without God, everything is vain and vanity and empty. Last part of that verse says, nor sworn deceitfully. The person who ascends the hill of the Lord does not use his tongue to deceive, make promises he doesn't keep, or use it for lies, vain talking. David saying that the tongue is one of, of the one that ascends that holy hill, is pure and holy and it is undefiled. Such is the man, he says, verse four, five, shall receive blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation. Such is the man or woman, boy or girl, where God's favor rests upon. Now this morning, we will be participating in the Lord's Supper. And often, I trust you examine yourself as you come before the Lord's table to see if there's any wicked way in us, whether it's something between the Lord and you, or between the Lord, you and others, whether it's idols sneaking up in your life you've been unaware of. So my, so far, you might be looking at this verse, these chapters so far and, and going like, well, this is not very encouraging. This is not very joy-giving. You look at yourself and you see the sinfulness in your own heart. How can I then with joy participate over the Lord's table? Is there anyone that fulfills these requirements? You know, Isaiah got a glimpse of that glorious holiness. Isaiah chapter 6. He got a vision of God. Now before that, he had rebuked his nation for their sins. Then the Lord took him, Isaiah 6, and he saw the Lord seated upon his throne, high and lifted up. And the train billows out, the, 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 the ropes of this majestic God overflows the temple so great is he and he saw that vision of the angels with their eyes and their feet covered holy 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 is the lord of hosts the whole earth is filled full of his glory well his reaction was one of horror wasn't it in the light of such holiness and his own holiness or or lack thereof he instantly saw his own sin not just of others, even those that he had rebuked the chapters before. I am undone, he said. I need mercy. I need divine help. I am a man of unclean lips. 
Adam and Eve hid. Moses covered his face, the burning bush. Moses had gone up on the mount, indeed, to receive the Ten Commandments, but by his sin was excluded from the Promised Land. Job, after hearing God's speech to him, with all the, the 70 plus question, what is his answer? I have heard of thee by the hearing of mine ear, but now mine eyes seeth thee. Wherefore, I abhor myself, I repent in dust and ashes. What about the writer of the psalm? David, the great king, the sweet psalmist of David, the Lord's anointed, a man after God's own heart, would he qualify? what he wrote here, his words and his actions. Was it not David that by the use of his tongue and words used deceit and stealth and counseled Joab to murder his friend Uriah? Had he, he had not used his own hands as Abel did, but worse yet, he used as a king in his position the hands of someone else to murder, to make sure that Uriah was murdered? Was it not David, whose impurity of heart led him to see, to fetch, and to take Bathsheba, the eyes that God had given him to behold his glory, as he had done in the past, were now given over to vanity and lust? Was it not David's sin, when out of pride and self-reliance he went out against God's will to number the people, First Chronicles 21, and 70,000 men died. Imagine that, 70,000 men offending the holiness of God. You can imagine perhaps, if you think of Elam, which was Bathsheba's father, he would read this psalm with a bit of a frown on his face. This man is a murderer. He killed my son-in-law, a faithful servant of the king. He would risk his life for him on the battlefield. And I can imagine if you once were, were one of the orphans or widows of those 70,000 that died, that your esteem would not be so high of David. How could David hear and elsewhere write with such confidence, as though he was perfect, as though that he himself was righteous, something that he has gotten on his own? No, David was not writing about himself. Ultimately, in this messianic psalm, he was speaking about the Savior. He was looking to another man that would fit those qualifications, who walked up that hill without fear or shame. A man whose at first sight the doors of the temple would open. Point three, Christ, the victorious one and ascended one. The apostle writes that none of us can bring our own righteousness. He calls it dung, manure. Isaiah describes it as filthy rags. It's a sad thing that most people in the world, even in the Christian church, because of unclarity of teaching, are dressing themselves up with manure and filthy rags, and they think they can go to a royal banquet. Maybe you're like that. Maybe you're like that. 
They fit, they think they are fit to walk into the presence of the great king of the universe. Just like that. Our first parents tried, quickly gathered some leaves. That did not do either. The Lord provided them temporarily with something else, a picture of what was to come. Well, and the truth is, of course, that all of us fall short and are left standing in the other regions of that hill. None of us are qualified to walk that hill were it not for the person and the work of our great Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who brings us there. And may it be with those eyes that we read this psalm and all other psalms, because they all speak of the Savior, as the Lord Jesus said. They all point to him. It was he who first descended from heaven. He humbled himself. He lived in those glorious regions and came down to the earth. Assumed a body like ours, he was sent from the Father. It was he who fully obeyed God, fully loved him. His heart was always pure. Out of his tongue came no impurity or deceit. In fact, when they heard him speak, even the unbelievers said, no man ever spoke like this. Colossians 1 describes him as the creator that we had looked at in verse 1 and 2, who is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of every creature. For by, things, for by him all things are created that are in heaven and that are in earth visible and invisible, whether there be thrones and dominions and principalities or powers. All things were created by him and for him, for his glory. He is before all things, and by him all things consist, all things hold together. He is the creator of all, who first ascended up another hill, close to where the temple once stood, where the ark of God once stood. Once a year, the high priest would go in the holies of holies and sprinkles blood upon the altar, reminding us now of the precious blood of Christ that was shed for the remissions of our sins. Christ ascended that hill that we could have access to the Father. It was there on that hill of Golgotha, he ascended for us, for the believer, he traveled that road towards the place of a skull, a place of execution and suffering. There on the cross, the place of a curse, an unimaginable horror of the wrath of God was poured out on him in fullest measure. Nothing was withholden. He took his clean hands, his clean feet and heart and mind for sinners, the unclean ones, the soiled ones, the rebellious ones, the law-breaking ones, whose feet, heart, and mind had sinned against this great creator. Like Naaman, spiritual lepers, undone. In him, our rebellious feet and hands were pierced with nails. His pure heart was pierced with a sword and on his head the seed of our thinking and of our actions, the symbol of the curse was placed. 
Here, yes, there is one that can ascend, even soar onto this holy hill in the presence of God. It is by faith that we look to that work, that glorious work of Christ, away from ourselves. Christ, our head, is gone before us. He is fully satisfied. Your sin, your believer, your sin on that cross. First five points of the blessing that this man gives. Those who trust in him are blessed with righteousness. Righteousness comes from him. He takes our dirty dress that we thought at one point was so shiny and nice and gives us a robe of righteousness. When he ascended on high, he led captivity captive and gave gifts unto men. Ephesians 4, 8. And God the Father sees us in all the glorious perfections of the Savior. He sees us like that of his blessed son and he gives us a great table to remember this by where we can again and again proclaim our faltering hearts of his goodness and his mercy Christ has taken me by grace on that hill of Golgotha and all his people on that hill now we have union with him Ephesians 2 4 till six, but God who is rich in mercy, for his great love wherein he loved us, even when we were dead in sins, hath he quickened us together with Christ, for by grace are you saved. He has raised us up together and made us sit together in the heavenly places. Even now, astonishing. The psalmist goes on into a triumphal exclamation crescendo of the Psalms, of the returning king, the ascension of Christ from Mount Olivet into heaven. Picture here, and you can probably picture it yourself. The Son of God returning into heaven itself, the humbled one, the despised one, the rejected one. For 33 years he lived among us, now returning as the King of kings and the Lord of lords, taking his rightful place. Lift up your heads, O ye gates, be ye lift up, ye everlasting doors, and the King of glory shall come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord strong and mighty, the Lord mighty in battle. Lift up your hands, ye gates, even lift them up, ye everlasting doors, and the King of glory shall enter in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord of hosts, he is the King of glory. Selah. Hebrews 9:11 said, but Christ being one, Christ being come and high priest of good things to come by a greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is to say, not of this building, neither by the blood of goats or calves, but by his own blood, he entered in once into the holy place, having obtained eternal redemption for us. Who is this king? Of course, it is Christ. His work on earth was finished, and now in heaven he appears in the presence of God the Father for us to intercede for his bride. The psalmist paints a beautiful picture here of a returning king from the battlefield, the olden days, and then coming home. This king has won the battles of sin and death. He has conquered the evil one and taken away his power and takes his seat, sits down, 
one thing that the high priest did not do in the temple. He came down to earth in great humility and is welcomed back with great fanfare as the conquering lion, the great king, who has won every battle he had set out for. He is the Lord of glory. Isn't that a great term, the Lord glory? The door of heaven, as it were, is swung open, the everlasting gates of heaven, never to be shut again. These large doors, as it were, were lifted from their hinges and taken out to make room for the entry of this great king of glory. Christ the victor came back. And if we are in him, we are more than conquerors. As he has overcome, so every one of his saints, how weak we may be, we will overcome. Last year, when the new King Charles was coronated in London, there was a great deal of ceremony and pomp and fanfare and other high-honored guests. And it was interesting to see and watch. Yet, compared to this description described, the coming of Christ back into heaven makes that coronation of all the earthly kings look like a, a toddler's birthday party, isn't it? To this king, all kings and rulers and people, and you and I here will one day give account, will one day bow. Isaac Ambrose writes concerning these verses, and I paraphrase it a little bit. He said, oh my soul, how should this heighten your joy and enlarge your comfort that Christ is now received up into glory? Every sight of Christ is glorious, and every sight we should wait on the Lord Jesus for some glorious manifestations of himself. Come, look at this great view of Christ entering into glory, and you will find the same sparkles of glory on your heart. Oh, this scene is a transforming scene. And he quotes 2 Corinthians 3, verse 8. But we all, with open face, beholding as in a glass the glory of the Lord, are changed into the same image from glory to glory, even as by the Spirit of the Lord. We focus on this if we, if we, if we as Isaac Ambrose said here, if we have a view of that, it changes us, isn't it? We're sanctified by it. Brothers and sisters, once again, we will be partaking, celebrating the Lord's Supper, and let us rejoice on the reflection upon our great King, our Creator, our Redeemer, and who did not leave our poor souls standing at the foot of the mountain when the Ten Commandments were, were begotten by, by um, Moses, but who takes us up to that hill of glory and he brings us to God. He is that greater Joshua that leads us into the promised land. He is that greater Samson who took the gates of the city away and he put the doors elsewhere to break them open. Whatever our concerns are this morning, whatever our worries are, you wonder if we focus on the light of such a great gospel, such a great message, how it would lighten our burdens, 
how things of this earth would grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. And anyone here, young or old, children, however young you are, older folks, perhaps you're still climbing this hill on yourself. Your goodness, your hard work, your status, Maybe you're knitting for yourself that rope of manure. Filthy sight, isn't it? Or maybe you say, well, my hands and mine are exceedingly dirty. Far from pure. How can I be right in the sight of God? Go even then now, even then now, to the Savior of sinners and place your trust in that great King, who went on the mount of Golgotha for sinners. He will cleanse, he will wash, he will fully atone for your sins. It's a great promise. Charles Spurgeon writes, Faith stands by the fountain filled with blood, and as he washes therein, very clean hands and a pure heart, a holy soul and a truthful tongue are given unto her. Then, only then, if we gone to him, God will give us his Holy Spirit, gift to all believers. He transforms us into his image and his likeness. He will create in us a clean heart. We will be a new creature. And yes, there will be ups and downs. There will be reminders, probably this morning, if you're a believer, you're reminders of your own sin and shortcoming. But he will, bit by bit, conform us to our blessed Redeemer himself. In that Holy Spirit's transforming power, we are transformed more and more in the likeness of the Savior. And that is a lifelong process. And that's why we, we remember it time and time again. When we sit here every month, we look every time anew to our need and remember that unspeakable gift. Lift up your hands, O ye gates. Even lift them up, ye everlasting doors, and the King of glory shall come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord of hosts. He is the King of glory. Selah. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you again for your word. We thank you for that great Savior that we all so desperately need. Father, whether we are Christian for 70 years or a brand new one, Father, help us by faith to look at him again, see new aspects of his glory, his kindness, his goodness, and Father, to again stand by that great fountain that was filled with blood. Father, we thank you for that. Thank you that you um, have enlivened us to this for believers, that you've awakened us. That's a gift as well. Father, pray for young people here, for those that do not know the Savior. Still, maybe this is boring to them. Again and again, an account of a Savior that's dying on a cross, it's boring. Oh Lord, would you even now convict them? Would you draw them? Sinners, though they be, would you draw them to yourself? In Jesus' great name we pray. Amen.